Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Garrisonovich, a PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, uh, losing a battle against a fly in my office. Yeah, it's been an exciting one. <laughs> I've been sitting here for like the last 10 minutes listening to him fail to kill a fly. It's been really entertaining. <laughs> I wish we had been recording that. Yeah, if only. <laughs> And I'm Cameron Lalana. Uh, this week, I'm using my time exceedingly well and uh, learning how to use an online tabletop simulator to play the Warhammer tabletop game. Uh, so, yeah, there's that. I also bought like $100 worth of Call of Cthulhu stuff. So, boy. good time investment and good financial investment. Yes, an investment in your future. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> well... This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week. I'm sorry. The more I get into this, the more I think this isn't appropriate for this episode. But we're going to unwind from our <laughs> week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we're going to be taking a detour from our Summer of Anna Karenina series with a deep dive into the relaxing? No. One Soldier's War by Arkady Babchenko, exploring the first and second Russo-Chechen Wars of the 1990s. This week, we continue to be eternally grateful to all of our patrons. If you are interested in helping the show out, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We have a lot of fun Patreon-only content and rewards, and it really helps the show out. If you're not interested in Patreon, but would prefer to support us in a more free way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for the updates. But before we get into the reading today, and, and boy, are we going to need this to get through the reading. Yep. Matt, what are you drinking today? So I'm, I'm doing what I think is the summer version of a Jack and Coke, uh, which is a Jack Honey and Lemonade, which is <laughs> perhaps God's truest gift to man. It's delicious. That sounds really good. Yeah. What are you drinking today? I, <laughs> I have the most expensive <laughs> beer I have ever bought for this podcast. Mm-hmm. So I went to an, I decided to keep the ball rolling with, uh, you know, hometown, not hometown, current town breweries. <laughs> And I went to Super Owl Brewing, uh, and I bought Nerd Out, which is a milk stout. And when I arrived there, they did not have prices on anything, so I just asked for a four-pack of Nerd Out, because it was their only stout. And they gave it to me and said, okay, that'll be $20. <laughs> and you said, never mind, you can just pour it directly <laughs> into my mouth instead. <laughs> Do I have to pay you before I drink it? But um, <clears throat> yeah, so I have, I've got... Currently, I'm holding a $5 milk stout in my hand. Was it worth the $5? I mean, it's a good milk stout. All right. All right. Yeah. yeah that's a lot of money. So let's talk about <laughs> One Soldier's War. <laughs> Sorry. It gets funnier to me each time we have to banter around an extremely <laughs> terrible war episode. You handed me the uh, Svetlana Alexeyevich book yes. about, you know, World War II. And I said, let's up the ante and talk about <laughs> Let's talk about war, but without any of the heroism of fighting for your country. Yes, yes, you Uno reverse card me uh, right in this episode here. <laughs> last time, I last time when we talked about that book, I said it's actually not as depressing as One Soldier's War. But I just reread One Soldier's War, and actually, I think One Soldier's War is way more depressing. Depressing in a different way, I guess. Yeah, is the only way to describe it. It hits different. Would you like to give a little bit of a little bit of history? Yes. For, for our pals at home that don't know much about this time period. Yes. So you may have never heard of the Republic of Chechnya. And so you may be asking, why do we care about a soldier's biography from a country that I may have never heard of? 
And that's fair. This isn't literature like we usually cover. It's a biography and not even a biography of many lives. It's a biography of one life, which we kind of railed against in the, the episode of Svetlana and Lixayevich. Oops. <laughs> Oops. Well, this is also important because it's interesting to engage on a first-person level with conflicts like this. And secondarily, the, the Chechen conflicts in the politics around them are really important if you want to understand certain features of, of modern Russia. Uh, first of all, the first and second Chechen conflicts were the first post-Soviet wars that Russia fought, really. Um, the, the change from the first war to the second war sees... A, a big shift in Russian society, especially as it becomes to increasingly come um, as Putin comes to power and things begin to change in the country. In the second war, you see a widespread use of police forces, especially Oman riot troops, uh, who are still like the police forces in Russia today. So you do see kind of a militarization of the police at that point. And you also see the installation of Ramzan Kadyrov, who is the current president of the Republic of Chechnya. Um, if you're interested in this topic, there are also other works on this, obviously, outside of Akhadi Babchenka. I, for this episode, am pulling a lot of information from Mark Galliotti's uh, book, Russia's Wars in Chechnya, 1994 to 2009. Uh, there are many journalists' works on, on Chechnya. I would especially recommend Anna Polikovskaya's um, collection of dispatches from Chechnya titled uh, A Small Corner of Hell, which not really an uplifting read, but it certainly is uh, important, and especially because it, it does focus on the Chechen people, which is also really important. It is important to keep in mind that this is a, a work from the perspective of a Russian soldier, so it is an interesting and important, but it's also really important to keep that in mind in terms of the framing that's going to be happening in this discussion here. Okay, so I may have overlooked the most basic question you may have about this episode, which is what is Chechnya? Cameron, what is Chechnya? <laughs> um, you may have ascertained that it's a, it's a, a republic, but it's not its own country. So Chechnya is one of um, Russia's 22 constituent republics. Cameron, what's this constituent republic? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you asked. So Russia is... <laughs> totally unprompted. <laughs> Russia has 85 federal subdivisions, and what that means is there are different... You could call them states, roughly, but they have different classifications. There are oblasts. Uh, there are other things, which... Two other formats, which I can't quite remember what they're called, but they're similar to oblasts. There are constituent <laughs> republics, and there's one autonomous region, which is, they believe, the Jewish, Auton Jewish autonomous zone. So Chechnya is one of 22 republics. However, it was not always super jazzed on that idea, which is how we get to the first Chechen war. So, so Chechnya itself is in the southern part of European Russia. It's, it's north of Georgia, um, also north of Armenia, Azerbaijan, if that means anything to you. If you've ever seen a map and you, you know where the Black Sea is on the map, you're going to have Ukraine to the north, Russia to the northeast. Chechnya is going to be in that part of Russia, which kind of extends all the way down to Georgia between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, if that means anything to you. Chechnya obviously has, well, the idea of the state of Chechnya is a relatively recent one, but Chechnya as a region and Russia have had a lot of conflicts in the 19, early 19th century. Um, Alexei Yermolov, who is a Russian general, tried to basically exterminate Chechnya as, as Russia was trying to expand into the region. So it's not been a great relationship historically. To say the least. <laughs> yeah. Um, continuing on that trend, once we reached the Soviet Union, uh, the Chechen people were initially were tried to be brought in under the uh, Chechen English um, Autonomous Soviet so Socialist Republic, which is like a subregion of the Soviet Republic of Russia. But uh, Stalin had problems with the Chechen people. 
as he had problems with a lot of people. So he basically ordered them to be exiled from Chechnya and sent them to Central Asia, Siberia, Kazakhstan, etc. And this was not a great time for the Chechen people of, of roughly 480,000 people who have been estimated who were estimated to have been living in Chechnya at the time and were removed. Uh, about 200,000 of them were estimated to have died. So not good. Uh, they could only return after the death of Stalin. In fact, a number of years after the death of Stalin. Uh, he died in 1952. They couldn't return until 1956. So they're kind of a people displaced. This engenders among some of them a feeling of, of a need for a, a national Sorry, Chechnya. Sorry, Stalin died in 53. 53, thank you. Sorry. I had to do a quick fact check. Fact <laughs> check, because I thought it was 53. Yeah, you're, you're correct. I also, I also keep thinking that Kennedy was died in 1960 did not can he die in 1962 or 1963 i want to say 62 but I, maybe i'm wrong about that one he died in 1963 i also think john f kennedy died in 62 for some reason interesting um apparently just ate threes it's a conspiracy of the 53s <laughs> <laughs> uh so among the people who were displaced by this was a man named jokar dudayev who was a soviet air force a colonel who mostly was stationed in Estonia and was apparently quite influenced by the, the identity of the Estonian people and the, and the desire for independence and to have their own state. So when he finishes his, his term with the, Soviet Ar or with the Soviet Air Force, he returns to Chechnya in 1990 and gets involved in nationalist politics. A year later, during the August coup, when uh, uh, military hardliners in the USSR were trying to remove Gorbachev, uh, he, he sees that opportunity to take independence as, as a nationalist leader of Chechnya, which was not recognized by the USSR, obviously, but Yeltsin at that point, who was leading the Russian Republic, kind of tolerated it until the actual dissolution of the USSR. At that point, we have the signing of the New Federation Treaty, which established Russia as its own independent nation. Chechnya at this point, which was tied together with Ingushetia, uh, when, when they, it and its neighbor, although it had been tied together by the Chechen Ingush uh, ASSR, they went different directions here. Ingushetia basically tried to become a constituent part of the new Russian uh, Federation, whereas Chechnya, which had already declared independence, uh, tried to keep going down that path. After the dissolution of the USSR, Yeltsin was no longer in favor of Chechen independence because it was no longer a problem for Gorbachev, now it was a problem for him. Of course, there were many other things to focus on in the early 1990s, namely the uh, transition from uh, the communist system to a capitalist system, which famously went incredibly badly in Russia, <laughs> like really, really badly. So by the time you're getting to 1994, two years into this deal, the, the economy is terrible. You have suddenly explosions of homelessness, of people not being able to buy food, and Yeltsin really needs a win. So he looks towards Chechnya, which has been a thorn in his side this whole time with them, you know, insisting that they're their own nation and not part of Russia. And he is basically like, all right, we're going to lay down the law. So the Russian military, which has just a reminder, their last major military engagement was in the Afghan-Soviet war, which also went not super great for the Soviet Union. Like, unfamously badly, I feel like. <laughs> I feel like that's nobody thinks about the war in Afghanistan. That's, okay, if you think about it at all, it is famous for going badly, but if you, yes. if you were, like, a normal person, you probably never think about it. <laughs> Whereas it haunts us. <laughs> well, as, as, like, as a person who studies Russian history, who has had, like, a disproportionate number of, of Afghan friends, it's, like, been very present in my life. Yeah, yeah. No, but I think it actually is. I'm, I'm 
I am being serious. I do, I do think it is. Did it did go unfamously badly? But that's actually a problem that people don't know anything about it. That that is fair. Same for these wars. People love to draw like exact lines for, through Soviet history to modern Russia, but they skip over a really important part in the nineties. Like <laughs> there were things that were happening that you you're not talking about. Yeah. 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 Well. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why we're talking about it. <laughs> So in 1994, the Russian military basically plans a, a decapitation strike where they are going to go in from three different directions to seize the city of Grozny. Grozny is the capital of Chechnya, or at this point, it's the Chechen Republic of Iskaria. And the separatist sentiment here is mostly driven by nationalism. Let's put a pin in that because it will not always be that case. So Grozny uh, is a Russian word, if you know anything about Russian, and you might be wondering, hey, why is the capital of Chechnya named after a Russian word? Well, uh, go back to Yermolov, the guy who wanted to exterminate all the Chechen people. Um, he established a base in Chechnya at the time, which he called Grozny, which um, if you're familiar with Ivan the Terrible, his name in Russian is Ivan Grozny, which more accurately is translated, as I understand it, as Ivan like the Dreadful. Correct me if I'm wrong. I was told that when I was in Russia, but... I've heard every Russian has told me something different. <laughs> okay, well, that sounds, that's about par for the course. But it means terrible or dread or it's not a positive word association, basically. So that is the name of the, the camp, the base that uh, Yermolov established. And that is the name of the capital, which is descended from that. So, mm. yeah, also other fun things about Chechen history. Anyway, as um, if you've ever studied any war in history and you've heard some general say, hey, this is going to be done by Christmas, essentially, uh, you know, famously, that always goes to plan. <laughs> They so they launched a strike in December. It was only supposed to take a matter of days, but it immediately got bogged down. And by the time Russian troops got to the city of Grozny, um, they they were able to eventually win, win, uh, technically take control of, of Grozny. Uh, however, um, what happened there is, I think, I think the technical term for it is a fucking disaster. Yeah, I, I, I saw that written somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> militarily, humanitarian-wise, like it's hard to establish how badly the Russian military kind of got routed, how many civilians died in this. Uh, it was just not a good time for anyone. The Russian military was not properly trained for, for urban warfare. The civilians were not a consideration for, frankly, any side. It didn't go so hot, TLDR. And the, the fighting, even though in this era, the, the Russians basically began to take control of cities, the age-old problem of controlling the cities but not the countryside began to crop up, and the war eventually kind of comes to a truce in 1996, but is never eh, truly resolved. So by the time we reach the truce in 1996, at this point, Dudayev has been killed by a Russian airstrike, and uh, the former, well, one of the former high-ups in, in the government, uh, Maskadov, uh, comes to power and he's more favorable to negotiating a solution so they kind of come to a truce with the russian government now one of the important things to note is that over the course of this war although the initial impetus was nationalism there were a number of people especially people who became kind of like local um leaders of troops especially because the military although it technically existed was more you could look at it better as something that, that technically was in existence but the people who controlled it were really like the local commanders and a lot of the local commanders, especially as more and more of the nationalists were, were killed uh, by, you know, Russian decapitation strikes, 
the the religious separatism began to have a greater preeminence. And now Chechnya is predominantly a Muslim country. It was adopted sometime between, as I understand it, the 18th and 19th century uh, as, as primarily like the primary religion of the region. So that became a greater feature of, of the war. And as that became a more preeminent feature, international militants who also used their religion as the impetus for their uh, militarism began to come to Chechnya. And that kind of created a reinforcing effect as more and more nationalists were killed and more international funding for militants really was from religious sources. That becomes a primary feature. So the treaty that or the, the truce that happens in 1996 more or less continues until, you know, like roughly 1999. At this point, we have someone who's named Shamil Basayev, who is one of these sort of religious militants. And he is kind of determined to... Um, Taken, he wants to become the Chechen president, he wants to uh, make it an independent state, and he also wants the same for surrounding regions. So, uh, Shamil Basayev, in 1999, eventually launches an invasion of Dagestan, which is a bordering country, uh, with, with his forces, and the, the, they kind of expect the same thing which the Russians expected in 1994, which is to be greeted as liberators. Um, and the same thing that happened to the Russians in 1994 happens to Basayev's forces in 1999, which is that the Dagestani people don't really see them as liberators. Oops. And uh, yeah, so they end up fighting back and eventually federal forces, you know, joined them. The other important thing to note about 1999 or late in the um, late in the year is that this is the first year and um, and very, very technically that Putin comes to power. He becomes president on December 31st, 1999. Uh, which is when Yeltsin resigns. You may think that's a weird date to come to power, and yeah, it is. As as far as I understand it, the the guess of most academics or people who study this is that Yeltsin was trying to avoid a panic, so he resigned on a night that people were probably not paying attention to the TV or were already <laughs> drunk. So, yeah, that's fair. Yep. And in the following months, there were a number of terrorist attacks to undertaken on Russian soil, there is some question of whether or not they were all, uh, let's say, legitimate, but I'm not going to get into that on this podcast. <laughs> that's a that's a bonus episode that I do want to get into though at some point. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I would I would I would fully support that too. Yeah. So let's, let's yeah. do it's that. It's super interesting. Yes, but that is used as the impetus to launch the second Chechen War, uh, and at this point things are a bit different. Although a lot of lessons had not been learned from Afghanistan, which then translated Chechnya. Uh, the lessons, you obviously see a much different government in this era. Um, this is no longer a floundering government looking for support. It is now a government which is looking for ways to show that it is in control. So instead of primarily uh, some number of specialist troops supported by regular troops, we see a lot of police units being deployed, a lot of Oman troops, a lot of Ministry of the Interior troops who are um, although they are police, not soldiers, they have been trained in urban environments, which was not true of the soldiers in the first uh, Chechen war. Uh, you see greater use of, of more varied tactics, especially snipers, and, and just a, a sense that things had actually been learned from the first Chechen war. Um, that's not to say that things went simpler. In fact, the kind of the same thing happened, except this time the Russian military kind of had its shit together. Um, but it did eventually devolve into a war in the mountains. The main thing that, that happens here, and the main thing to keep... Uh, your attention on, is that in this process, the Russian government attempted to undertake what they called the policy of Chechenization, which was the policy of getting, of working with local Chechens in order to combat other Chechens. 
Uh, so this could happen for a number of reasons, either because they were you know, paying some people or because uh, they were offering you know, power to some people, various reasons. But many Chechens begin to work with, um, with the Russian forces. So you begin to have Chechen forces fighting alongside them. Uh, oftentimes they were more effective at, at undertaking what they called uh, operations to basically suppress quote-unquote terrorism. Uh, at this point, the Russians also set up filtration camps, which were just rife with abuse. When I say it's more professional, I don't mean it was it was like better. You still see tons of um, Human Rights Watch did a very comprehensive view of Russian filtration camps, which were looking for, you know, people who might have fought. Um, and those were just rife with kidnapping and torture and just abuse of every kind and, and extortion of Chechen people. It was not a good time and it was not a, a good place to be. But the Russian military was more effective in achieving its goals, human rights notwithstanding. One among the, these groups of Chechens who worked with the Russians was, um, was a man named Katerov, and he was very successful and eventually becomes the, the, the Chechen president after more or less Russia and, and Chechen, uh, Russian-aligned Chechen forces basically establish a, a dominance in Chechnya. He's killed in an assassination, and his son, Ramzan Katerov, who basically ran the Kadravite, some people call them Chechen squads, some people call them death squads, becomes president. And he is president to this day, supported by Putin, and that is a, a, a favor to Ramzan Katerov, which has certainly never uh, been forgotten, uh, because Chechnya votes 99% or over for Putin every single election. Uh, sometimes they're so excited that they, they even have turnout of 107% one year. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, really excited for elections. I'm really glad to see, you know, electoralism spreading through the world. I do love to see democracy in action. <laughs> so that it, that is kind of where we go to, where we leave Chechnya today. Of course, many, many other things happen. There's a revamping of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. But there is certainly an interplay between modern Russian politics, especially in the Putin era and that is really apparent in the way that they in in the Chechen state or the sorry the Chechen Republic have related to each other. And that is a short history of Chechnya as it relates to this book, <laughs> One Soldier's War. Thank you. I liked it. <laughs> Thank you. I just think it's important because I actually really do think it's an understudied, like severely understudied area of history. Yeah. Even in our field, I think. I would fully agree. I, I got into Russian studies through studying the Chechen wars. And honestly, after I got into the Russian studies proper, so to speak, I never once had anyone touch Chechnya ever again outside of me studying conflict studies, which wasn't even related to, to Russian as a whole. Right. I I don't even, I don't think any of it was... Throughout my whole undergrad, I don't even know if Chechnya was really ever mentioned. It, you'd think it'd at least get like a passing something, you know? But you'd think you'd think. Uh, but yeah, that's that's why we bring this to you, the listener today. The only other place I think can think of Chechnya really being mentioned is in Tolstoy's quote unquote final work, Haji Murat. Yeah, there, there are 19th century writers who do some things with this region, which are interesting. And that does that is mentioned that is studied. But I would say in terms of like the modern conflict, even though, as you mentioned, it predates the modern conflict. That's where I would be curious to see more things taught yes absolutely especially because you know it, it is so important for things like um in the same way that if you're studying the history of, of journalism in america vietnam is a turning point and the way that uh the government treated journalism and journalism saw itself the same is kind of true of of russian journalism in chechnya um anna plikovskaya who i mentioned earlier was of course um if you're familiar with her was murdered in her apartment in 2006 
no few amount of people draw that to her somewhat adversarial reporting in Chechnya. Of course, her reporting was somewhat adversarial to the Russian government in general. So, you know, who knows? I'm sure she had she has a lot of enemies or had a lot of enemies. Yeah, I think, well, I, you mentioned Alexeyevich earlier, and I thought it was just interesting that both her and Babchenka are journalists. I mean, I guess Babchenka didn't really start as a journalist. It, based on what I was reading about him, it kind of just fell into place, I guess, Yeah, is how you might put it. Um, yes. But it's, it's interesting to see people with these jobs and these kind of mindsets that one might have as a journalist take this really active role in helping reconstruct parts of history. Yeah. Speaking of reconstructing history, Matt, can you kind of talk us through <laughs> the selections that we read from One Soldier's War? Yes, I can do a little bit. I was going to do like, I was prepared to do a full summary, but then I thought, nay, I won't, <laughs> um, because it would be really hard to summarize everything. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to start talking mostly about the, the preface and then a couple fragments, perhaps, is how I would best approach this. Because to me, actually, and I mean, we can talk about this more later, but it is it is very reminiscent of Alexeyevich or even Isaac Babel looking at, at Red Cavalry, that story cycle, the collection of short stories. I know there, there were some longer ones that you selected, but as uh, on the whole, it just structurally seemed to follow something similar, even though, as you mentioned, it does follow one soldier and his war. Uh, yeah. But alas, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I actually like the, the the starting line, which is that it would be wrong to think that the war in Chechnya began the day the federal army was brought in. Babchenko gives you, you know, his kind of his summary, if you will, uh, of the war and well, wars and the absolute lawlessness and chaos as he describes it, which are the two for me the main themes that we're running through the story like in well i guess i can't help but compare this to alexevich and the unwomanly face of war because that's what we had just read not that long ago at all actually even though it was chaotic there was still like this sense of organization in this it's just nothing there's just nothing like i, I don't know why anyone's here why anyone's doing anything that they are uh it's just <laughs> as you put it earlier not a good place to be um uh and i i like the kind of self-reflective nature i'm always curious about how journalists come to do some of the things that they do later and bob chanka says specifically i did not mean to write a book i didn't even think about what it was i was writing stories memoirs or some other kind of text it was not consciously a project and that's is just really interesting to me. And in, and in that way, I think it actually is kind of similar to Alexeyevich and that's the same kind of approach. Just the, I, I don't know, this almost the lawlessness of war is translated into the genre of it, which is that it's really hard to define what it is, except it's a book about war and what's well, really a collection of stories about war. Um, but then it's like, okay, they're not really stories. It's kind of, they're fragments. They're images I, what are they it's really it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what it is you're reading at any point in this which i like i think that's fun i think that plays to its strength it's but there's a lot of it it's good uh in terms of genre in terms of content well let's just say not the best no there are <laughs> the, the the ones that i had had read most in depth were from this this first selection that you had sent there's like 10 or so fragments that kind of go through different different things that have happened to uh, Babchenko and while he was 
while he was fighting. We can discuss some of them if you'd like. I have some of them that were striking to me. Yes, please go for it. Actually, the <laughs> the one that I was just like, woof. Uh, I think even in my notes I wrote woof. Uh, oh no, <laughs> it wasn't for this one, but it it could have been. <laughs> it was the, the second the second one, uh, the River Arkin. Mm. about the it's a story kind of it's a page and a half uh, about a platoon that they have no water and they're drinking out of a river and it smells like rotten eggs and it's the color of cement but they drink it anyways and to get them through it they tell themselves that hydrogen sulfide is good for their kidneys so it's fine that they drink it and they bathe in it and they cook in it and they cook with it they do whatever they need to do with with this water because that's all they have and then they notice as they're kind of holding this position over time that, well, in the water, things you might expect to see. Fish, plant, sand, maybe. Not the kind of stuff they see. Instead, they see bodies. Not what you like to see. They see no. jeeps also with bodies coming downstream. And they're talking about how they're trying to take the bodies out of the water because it's hot in Chechnya at this time of year and the bodies are going to start decomposing in the water that they're drinking. They're not they're not able to get them out uh, because some of them are lodged under, as I mentioned, these jeeps and whatnot. It's you know, really difficult. Uh, and basically they have to end up drinking it. And they said, well, we kept drinking it, but we no longer said it was good for our kidneys. And I don't know, there was just something about that little zinger, if you will. Yeah. That for me was kind of reminiscent of Isaac Babel. I was like, hmm, something about this this narrative style. It, like, it almost felt like a long setup. Yeah, that makes sense. In the worst possible way. <laughs> it is the darkest possible joke you could tell. Yes. In in a page and a half. Yes. And so this this first selection is is filled with with things like that that I that I enjoyed a lot. Well, I personally enjoyed it as a someone who studies Russia generally, but it's tough, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Did you have a, a favorite? I know you also enjoyed hmm. this as a whole. I was wondering like which ones or if there's anything in particular that you liked as well. You know, I like you said, there's a lot of dark humor through here. Yeah. The one that always stands out to me is is the ninth one, Sharik. Mm-hmm. or shark which is about a dog that they adopt and he they always they love having this dog he's bring everyone's spirits up but they ha- they have no food and no one's giving them food and eventually they kill the dog so they can eat him and they they all you know they they eat the dog and feeling pretty shitty and then the next day they get a supply of oats so okay this to me is again to bring it back to bobble this is exactly what it yeah. reminds me of this is an exact inversion of his story, Tomorrow the Bitch, in which the dog is this giver of life in that story. This is a complete inversion of that. I, mm-hmm. I mean, Obviously, he's, this is not a work of fiction, so he's not playing on that. But it's just interesting to, if you were to do a comparative study of the differences between the periods, because there are things that you could read, there are parts of this that you could read that are... V- like you could have written it about any period of war. There are some mm-hmm. things in here which are just like generic war sentences about like smells and images and senses, uh, it's like sensory descriptions of war, which are you could find in a lot of other things. They're not really, you know, I don't want to say like generic in a bad way, but just like they could be applied to multiple war situations. Like, you know, yeah. war, war can look similar at different parts, I suppose, at different times, I suppose. But 
looking at these kind of things that are changing, it's it's much different than 1919, for instance. It's not the 1920s anymore. It's, I don't know, much more mechanized, even brutal in some aspects. Well, in right. a lot of aspects. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I just thought it, that was an interesting one because I, I, I think, probably you still have this shred of hope. I do not detect a shred of hope while reading this. I don't know about you. It was very... No. There's there's nothing to pick you up while you're reading it. I, I really enjoy Russian postmodernism of the 1990s because they're... I know Russian history or Russian literature is famous for being, for being bleak, but mm-hmm. you really don't know Russian bleakness until you read like 1990s Slavic or literature from any post-Soviet country. It is so much bleaker than you can imagine because before it's you know the bleakness of the human soul now it's the bleakness of hey we've got no state we've got no power we've got no food we've got nothing (laughs) i haven't eaten fruit in a decade yeah i think that's what i think that's what a little bit stuck out to me is there is a concreteness to the bleakness it's you know it's not an abstract 19th century sort of spiritual suffering it is like yeah i do not have basic resources i'm i'm watching people in my platoon being strangled with their own intestines you know that sort of thing yeah um and speaking of people um (laughs) getting abused unfortunately um do you want to talk about part two moss talk seven because there's a lot to talk about there and very little of it is good yeah this although unfortunately this was the one that i really did skim yeah that's fair there's a lot this is a long section it was it was a long boy so in, in part two and this book is separated into three sections uh, part two is is much longer form uh, stories, and one of the one of them is Mazdok Seven, which is one of the staging grounds for incursions into Chechnya. And and this section takes place in in 1996 after the truce, after the end, quote unquote, of the first Chechen war. By and large, this section is about the system of Dezovshina, which is basically the system of bullying in the russian army kind of so there there it talks about the system of jezovshina which kind of gets reified through the army however in mazdok 7 at this particular time there were basically no rules and essentially here jezovshina means everyone beats everyone the recruits or the recon beat the recruits the officers beat the recon the their superiors beat them everyone's getting beaten it's bad really bad it's it's just a lot of abuse. Everyone, no one knows why they're here. No one is getting paid. Everyone is taking up their frustrations on everyone else. No one knows why they're fighting, and it just gets worse and worse. And and people are are deserting by the dozens. You know, some people in the section don't even last a full day. They go through one day of this, and then they desert, and then who knows what happens to them after that point. And it is a section dedicated to just the bleakness of the war at this point. And I, I think your earlier comparisons to Alexeyevich's work is really apt because throughout the difficulty of World War II, and it was difficult, it was difficult, this underlines the sense of bleakness that travels through everything in the way that there is no solidarity of we're all on the same side. It's, <laughs> there. there's a lot of cross-line solidarity. I mean, our, Babchenka shows a lot of, and a lot of his fellow soldiers show a lot of uh, sympathy for the Chechens. They don't even know why they're fighting the Chechens. Why are we fighting them? Why are they fighting us? Uh, at one point, one soldier queries uh, Babchenka, hey, listen, you're from Moscow. You know everything. So tell us, who started <laughs> this war? Osipov asks me. For some reason, he seems to think that Muscovites know everything there is to know. I haven't the foggiest idea. Ask me something easier. 
No, no, come on. What do you think? He says, not letting go. Well, the president, I suppose. What, him personally? No, he consulted me first. And then they kind of go on and there's like, you know, why, why do wars even happen? Why did they, why are we fighting them? Because they seceded? Why don't we just let them secede? Are they, are they our enemies? In which case we should kill them. Or are they, are, are they our citizens? In which case, how can we fight against them? Um, and they're just going back and forth and no one knows why they're fighting. And no one knows, frankly, who the enemy is. <laughs> they don't even, they can't even agree that there is an enemy. I was kind of expecting to get something different from this when I first hmm. came into it. Knowing that Babchenko's Russian, at like the side he fought on, I was expecting yeah. to get, I, I don't know, I was expecting it to get a text that gave me a different lesson to draw away from. But instead, you're right, it was, there was more, I, I, I never got the side, like, I never got the, any sort of indication that he was on a particular side for any reason, except kind of he had just happened to be there. Like, I it's really hard to describe, but there's this overwhelming sense of, well, I guess we're here and this is what we're doing. I don't know why, but hey, it's what we're doing. Uh, yeah. And it's it's interesting, to say the least. Yeah. And keep in mind that at this point in, in, to today, uh, the Russian military is based on a conscript-based service. So all these guys here are, <laughs> didn't sign up for the war. They're all required mm-hmm. to, to, to fight. And that's a point that he makes, uh, actually, that... Something has changed from the old days, and that the old days, everyone truly had to serve. That's not true anymore. No. He says, you won't find any smart, handsome boys in these tents. They were gotten out of the war by their rich daddies, leaving it to us ordinary folk to die in Grozny, the ones who didn't have the money to pay our way out. Heaped in these tents are the son of laborers, teachers, peasants, and blue-collar workers. Basically, all of those who were made penniless by the government's thieving reforms, and then left to waste away. These tents contained the ones who didn't know how to give a bribe to the right person or who thought the army service was the duty of every man. It's hard to contrast that more starkly against the the attitudes you see in former wars. That this is, I mean, to, to talk about the fact of, of rich boys getting out of war, I mean, you, could, you can apply that to a lot of nations, but you don't usually apply that to Russian, Russian history. This is the first time I've really, in reading Russian war literature, I've ever seen that attitude. Because it kind of is the first time that that's really broadly true. Yeah, I mean, normally you associate Russia. I mean, if you don't know anything about Russia, you think, hey, okay, uh, propaganda, maybe a Red Army choir. Yeah. And everyone's happily going off to war. But that's not at all. Well, first of all, not really the case in general, but also not the case here for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's so bleak that at the end, they can't even come to a conclusion on who the enemy is in that earlier conversation. At the end, they just begin joking on, joking about who would win a fight in a fist fight, Yeltsin or Dudayev, because <laughs> um, <laughs> that's all they can do. They can they 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 joke about instead of having a war, we should just make our presidents fight. And they burst out laughing, and and you know we stand around and cheer our guys on, and the Chechens cheer their guys on, and there would be no war, but. That's not how it works, so they have to go back to their daily lives of having to steal to pay off the, the older guys so they don't beat them or don't beat them as badly, and, and just having to hide. And uh, For a significant portion of this, um, Babchenka was literally not even staying in his barracks. He just becomes voluntarily homeless because it's better, and he just spends his days taking the bus into town, walking around and taking the bus back so he can scrounge for food in the bushes. And yeah. I don't, I don't, yeah, there's no better, like, more like contrast against and we made this this point a lot already against Alexeyevich's work then in a, in a short 
section, which Babchenka meets with a woman named Aunt Lucia, um, who is a, a Russian, ethnic Russian, who lives in Chechnya. And she lived in, in, in the city of Grozny until she, she escaped before the Russian troops came, which was lucky for her because she's still alive, which is not true for her family. Um, her youngest son was, was killed by Chechen militants in a sort of retaliatory attack, and her, her oldest son was killed by Russian airstrikes. And at one point in her recollections, Aunt Lucia says to Babchenka, I survived the Second World War when I was five. A German gave me a loaf of bread, and a Russian killed my son. Not much to say about that one, just think about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a major major part of this is about when they, they just take care of bodies at that point, they're just sending them home, and it, it, the bodies aren't even people to them. The only one that even catches his attention is when they start putting into bags the the bodies of chechen children and that's the only thing that can shock them out of their reverie of you know at this point bodies are simply bodies is seeing how many kids that they have to they have to they have to bury essentially and that's the the only thing that can get them to pay attention which is yeah 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 well i think it kind of speaks to to the development through the second chechen war and probably just kind of modern war more broadly not that it's a subject that i'm an expert on but just kind of thinking about it very basically with old-timey wars it was very clear to see who won and who lost for the most part the objectives were usually quite clear in comparison to uh, in this other fragment field deception when Bobchenko says in Chechnya now, there's a strong sense of duality. Wherever you go, it's more or less peacetime, but at the same time, it's not. The war is never far away. Um, it's just the war is generally over here, at least in the conventional sense of the word. Now there's just rampant crime. And so I think this is something specific to the modern era of distinguishing between things like what is an act of war, what is just what is just active criminality uh for instance and just the objectivelessness uh there's it's it's just very violent yeah i mean i you mind if we go to part three and talk about speaking yeah. of the objectiveless objectivelessness and talk about the kind of closing chapter of this book uh, operation life continues let's so the second to last chapter in this is book called operation life continues is a reflection it's no longer about his time in the war it's just about what it is like to return to war and and there's a lot to say about the reality uh, as opposed to you know as much as, as the kind of victorious attitude um many governments would like to, their soldiers to have upon returning but this one is particular to this point in time because it is not only the toughness of dealing with that but dealing with that at the same time that Chechnya, as with some conflicts in some countries, was not a war that happened for a lot of the country. It was a war that happened for the people in Chechnya, and it was a war that happened for the soldiers who fought in Chechnya, but it was not real elsewhere. So when, when Babchenko writes, No one returns from the war. Ever. Mothers get back a sad semblance of their sons. Embittered, aggressive beasts, hardened against the whole world and believing in nothing except death. Yesterday's soldiers no longer belong to their parents. They belong to war and only their body returns from war. Their soul stays there. That's something that, although they return to normal life slowly, slowly, they 
never truly come back because no one can understand them. It's not something that the whole society experiences. It's something that they alone carry. And in the very last chapter of the book, that comes to a kind of a head when he's sitting down with a, a homeless veteran, and I think he's under an overpass in the subway, and he's chatting with him, and the guy is is angry. He says he he's angry at everyone else. He says, um, you know, look at it. We we died. Kids were dying there. We're like what? All these people around us, they're just they're they're a pointless generation. They're frittering away their lives. They have no idea why they're alive. And they did. They do this, and they live, and they have fun, and they drink beer, and they earn money. They did this all when we were dying down there. They did this while jets were flattening the mountains and tearing apart children and women, when wounded Chechen kids rotted in cellars, wrapping the stumps of their limbs in rags, and infection crept across the wounds. They, the people, the people of Russia, are guilty of these deaths. We are here to get what's ours, and we are ready to kill. This is a generation of soldiers who are not only alienated from any sense of, of reason for their fighting, but they, they came back and they were, people didn't understand. It simply didn't happen for other people. It, like that entire conflict was just not real for so much of the country to the extent that some people, including this particular soldier in this last one, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't even know. Why, why, did, why did people die and why did I survive? I don't know. Maybe there's a reason, maybe there isn't. Yeah, it's kind of weird to think about the way you phrased it, because like for Alexeyevich, she's talking about the contribution of women to World War II, which was largely written out of official history, but which people who served in the war at the time still recognized the sense that they knew it happened because they were there. It was a war that affected basically every corner of the country. It absolutely inescapable, the amount of damage. Whereas this is kind of, this is a really peripheral conflict for Russia, as you mentioned, like it is very different when you're looking at how soldiers are reintegrated or not reintegrated, really, in this case or both cases uh, into the country when you have on one hand this conflict that did happen and devastated much of the country. And then this other conflict, which, as we already mentioned, nobody really like I don't want to say nobody cares about it, but like not that many people study it. Not that many people talk about it. It's really overshadowed by a lot of other things. Yeah, it's just that produces, I think, the overarching bleakness of this book. You know, there is no why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to like sit back and analyze because I guess it's pretty self-apparent in that regard. Yeah, I don't think it's really a book for a... Uh, thematic literary analysis but it's no an example of how literature can play a really important role in cultural development and you know just kind of impacts on culture and in, in general yeah that's a good way of, of putting it that's what i tell myself <laughs> one thing i do want to note about babchenko is that he currently lives in ukraine mm -hmm. um and I don't know if you were plugged in when this happened, but when this happened, I was I was working in radio, yes. so I was very plugged in. When I looked <laughs> him up, I know exactly what you're going to say. When I looked him up on Wikipedia, yeah. I was like, oh my, it was this guy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I almost never tweet, but this is one of the few times I've tweeted when Arkady Babchenka several years ago was reported to have been assassinated, which is, it, um, is a reality for journalists in Eastern Europe from time to time. And like... 24 hours later, after we were all mourning Babchenka and, you know, everything, you know, his, his journalism, turns out he was alive and the whole thing was a sting operation by the Ukrainian police to catch the people who were trying to kill him, allegedly. Which just, what a wild series of events. I just wanted to see how people were going to react to his death. 
um, yeah, that was, that's the first retraction I've ever had to put out on Twitter. Uh, the only the only one I've ever had to put out on Twitter, but not that anyone cared. But um, came with a lot of canceled after <laughs> after announcing on Kanye Bobchenko death. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, wild series of events for that one. Um, yeah, so Kanye Bobchenko, not not Moscow's favorite person. No, can't be. Yeah. Well, Cameron, before we totally wrap up from what could be one of the most depressing episodes ever created in the podcasting universe, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you? I am, I, I want to I say I'm at a three. Honestly, yeah. I, I didn't have time to, to stop and drink beer that often. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not that, I'm, I would like to be more drunk than I am. Uh, how about you? I got to be about a three as well, because I have had enough alcohol where I could be drunker. However, mm-hmm. I am faced by the sobering reality of the stories <laughs> we just read. So I'm somewhere between a negative 10 and a three. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fair. Honestly, yeah. the, the the only place I've encountered uh, Chechnya and academia was, in like, like I said, in complex studies where I, I forget who it was. It was a, a complex scientist who was studying the effect of like Russian sweeps to reduce quote unquote terrorism versus Chechen sweeps sweeps to reduce terrorism and found that Russian, uh, that Chechen sweeps were more effective. And they concluded, we don't exactly know why, but it might've been because they knew probably who to target and who to, and like who to drag away in the middle of the night. So maybe that was because of their familiarity. And I was like, this is an oddly detached language. I mean, you know, it's, it's academia. So of course, but like this is oddly detached language for you describing death squads being more effective than, <laughs> Um, uh, academia. <laughs> uh, good times, but um, oh, academia! <clears throat> oh, academia! Can't live with them, <laughs> and that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, can you please, please tell me what we're reading next week? Uh, next week we will be turning back to 19th century literary analysis with part five of Anna Karenina, part of our summer of Anna Karenina series. Back to the world of the aristocracy and the will they or won't they tale of Levin and Kitty proposing to each other in chalk in undecipherable Russian words. Uh, love to see it for us. <laughs> okay. But before we let you go, we must extend a sincere thank you to our current patrons. We have so, so many of them now. We've got Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland podcasting isn't free and grad school does not pay very well believe that or not so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy tolstoy the music used in this episode was Soviet march by toasted tomatoes you can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on youtube under the same username if you're looking for other places to find us you can also follow us on instagram at tipsy tolstoy podcast or Join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Bye.